We are continuing in our series in the book of Acts. We've done the last three falls. We've worked through major sections of Acts. Uh, when we pick out kind of what we're doing for uh, our sermon time, we're generally going through a section of Scripture. So three years ago, we went through the first eight chapters, essentially, of Acts. Last year, we got about ten chapters in. This year, we're finishing the book from chapter 18 on to the end. So uh, if you're kind of following along and you're like reading the Bible on your own in your own time, uh, today we're basically all of Acts 19, but you can go and refresh yourself, reread the first 18 chapters uh, if you want. And we've been working our way through. And so today we're actually going to be in all of 19, chapter 19, and it's a lot. So I'm going to try to get us right into it. Um, and basically Paul, as he's been moving around the area has spent some time in Corinth, which we talked about that city being a very important trade and port city. There's a lot going on there. Uh, it was a way to basically cut off the bottom part of Greece instead of going all the way around the tip of Greece to get back into um, the sort of the western side of Greece. You could kind of cut through these, I, I'm sure there's a word for this, not peninsula, but isthmus I think might be the word. You could cut through and then they would pick your ship up out of the water, literally, and roll it uh, the distance between the two bodies of water and drop you in on the other side, and all of a sudden you were, you were on the other side of Greece. So it's kind of a big city where a lot of trade went through it, um, and it was kind of a big deal that Paul kind of landed there. He, you can see clearly that his desire is to place a church in Corinth, a church in Ephesus, which is another trade city on the sort of um, Asia Minor section of the Mediterranean, and then to eventually find his way to Rome. Okay, so he's trying to set up churches in these three specific places because he knows that people flow into these cities and out of these cities. And he knows these cities are key to the region around them. All the little towns and villages that are connected to Corinth, connected to Ephesus, connected to Rome, all of them would have been influenced by a church that was centrally located within the city. So Paul is just sort of planting these places. And we've just seen him leave Corinth and go to Jerusalem and now he's on his way back to Ephesus, and he's going to spend two years, two and a half years in the city of Ephesus. And so that's kind of the, the story we're picking up today. So we're going to do two and a half years of his life in just, just one sermon. Um, and the reason I don't really like park on this for a long time, we could have taken Ephesus, the story of that, of that church starting in that city, and kind of pulled it apart more and made it longer, extrapolated a little bit. But there are whole books written on it. We've already done, actually, Ephesians. Uh, so to me, it's like you can find out way more about what was going on in this section of Scripture through other parts of the Bible. And so we're, I'm just going to nail this in a, in a sermon and kind of let you guys know what was going on. And there's a lot. It's definitely a great move of God that starts this church. And you'll see it's like pretty intense from moment one. Like it gets going and it gets going incredibly fast. And they build out this incredible church that affects their entire community. And the reason we asked about cultural fads is because by the time we get to the end of this chapter, what you see is in a, about a two or two and a half year period that the church is so successful that it has disrupted the culture around it. Right? I, I do think that one of the applications of our sermon today uh, is going to be applicable in the next year or two. As we get sucked into sort of the political machine that's coming and the season, the political season that we find ourselves in, sometimes we can get to a place where we start to elevate the cultural and political season that the country is in above, right, 
the, the, the church and the gospel and Christ. And we need to keep our eyes on the ball that actually what changes cultures is often the transformation of many individuals who are following Jesus, not the participation in the game that the culture is playing. Right? That real true change comes when the church does its job and transforms the hearts of people towards Jesus and the gospel. And then oftentimes, what, when we find the most amount of change in our culture, oftentimes is when we lose, not when we win. I know that's going to that's gonna ruffle some feathers if you're very political. You know, you're like, hey, I want to win all the time. But often, we're called to lose to see the change that we want to see in society. All right, so here we go. Chapter 19 uh, in the book of Acts. Anyone want to tell me what page we're on in the Bible that's on the chairs? 954. We're still on the same page. I think we've been there for a couple weeks now. Jeez, this pastor should get going on this. Um, so follow along in 954 if you want, or um, we'll also have it on screen. Uh, we also have an app with uh, sort of fill-ins and notes and stuff if you want to take it. So you can do that too. I'm going to start with verse 8. So we finished 1 through 7 last week. So. so it says, Paul entered the synagogue and spoke boldly for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. But some of them became obstinate. They refused to believe and publicly maligned the way. This is essentially what happened to Paul in Corinth. When this happened to Paul in Corinth, he just decided, okay, I'm done preaching in the synagogue. I'm done preaching to people who are obstinate. When they start actually like maligning Jesus' name, I'm out. And he went next door and started preaching at the house that was right next door to the synagogue in Corinth. It was kind of like, a, hey, you can't stop me from doing this. This is going to be awesome, right? So same thing happens here. There's an obstinate spirit, uh, and people are starting to malign. They're starting to speak against Jesus. And that, the, the phrase, the way, was actually what uh, the, the form of Christianity at that time was how they referred to it. They didn't yet call themselves really Christians. It wasn't really known in the way that's known today. They just called themselves followers of the way. Right? Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life, that no one comes to the Father except through him. They said, hey, we're followers of the way, the one way to, to know God. Okay? And so that was the kind of name that they gave themselves. And as soon as that started to become a problem in the synagogue, Paul decides he's going to move on. So it says they publicly maligned the way, so Paul left them. He took the disciples with him and had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. So this is it's kind of an interesting little side note in history. We actually... Uh, can verify this in other passages, extra-biblical passages, where they talk about Paul teaching in Tyrannus's school. Tyrannus most likely got his name because he was a tyrannical teacher. It's most likely a nickname. So there you go. That's a pretty awesome dude to have as your teacher if you're a student. But what happened in their culture in Ephesus is that during the middle of the day, it was a little bit of a siesta culture. So people would be open in the morning and open in the evening, and they would close down during the middle of the day. And Paul said hey, we're going to take advantage of this empty time slot and this empty building, and I'm going to go just cut a deal with Tyrannus to use his sort of uh, his school, his building, his classroom to be able to teach the Word of God. I mean, it sounds a lot like the way church planters think, right? Like, I can't even tell you now. In fact, it's, what's really funny is watching... Uh, Macy. Uh, so we'll pull into a building. Like, for instance, the other day I was in uh, Shoreview, and there's that new, supposed to be like an Amazon building, uh, but they just didn't put anything in it. So it's just an empty building sitting there, you know? And every time I drive by an empty building, I think, that'd be a great place for a church. And often I just mention it. Hey, that'd be a great place for a church. And so my, 
kids have picked up on the idea that like we should look at every empty building as though it could be a church. Right? It would be awesome if we could plant a church in this giant empty building. So I actually said that. I go, hey, that, 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 you know, that, that, that would be a great church. And Macy goes, not enough parking, Dad. Like she, like she already knows like the, like the reasons why a building may or may not work for a church to be planted in it. And I was like, you're actually right. There are not enough parking spots right here for everybody to descend on it at one time on Sunday morning. It would run out of parking really, really fast. And it would actually just make everybody mad in the Starbucks or the Noodles and Company because they'd be overflowing into that parking lot taking up. It'd be church parking that would make everybody mad. So... I, I always look at things like this. I think Paul just sees an opportunity. Here's Tyrannus. He's not using this building during the day. He probably went, offered him something, signed a lease. And it says that he taught here uh, for two years. Let's see, where am I? 19, verse 8, going down. Um, this went on for two years so that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. Think about that. Everybody who lived in the province of Asia, which is essentially modern-day Turkey, heard the word of the Lord because Paul was teaching out of the school that was open just during the middle of the day in Ephesus. Like incredible movement of God's word into the outstanding area because if you think about it, let's just say Paul, like for, let's just call it two or three hours a day, is spending time teaching people God's word and going into the scriptures and guiding them into all the lessons that they might need to learn, discipling people you think about over a two-year period, okay? How many, I mean, they probably took off some days for holidays, and they probably took off at least one day a week, obviously, for a Sabbath. But for probably six days a, a week, and probably for almost every week for those two years, Paul is teaching for multiple hours people who are dying to know more about this Jesus and how he fits into the Old Testament and what they knew about Jesus. And he's telling the story over and over again and he's teaching it to people, and he's discipling people. And what happens when you teach God's word like that? It, it spreads, right? It goes from one place to the next, to the next, to the next. People then took what they learned there, and they took it on the trade routes that they were on. They took it to the back towns that you know, didn't have anyone come and visit them specifically. And they shared it with people, and they shared it with people, and they shared it with people. That's the way it looks. And what... What you're going to see here is an incredible work of God that begins, but I want you to know that the work of God is grounded in God's Word. You don't get anywhere on God doing something in your midst unless you ground it in God's Word. All of these movements that start and go through all of history and look at every single movement, it was generally pre, like, led by prayer and God's Word. Those are the two things that lead us into all the movements of God that we see throughout history. And so that's what Paul's doing. He is honoring God's word. He is teaching. He is discipling. He is following through on building. And the church in Ephesus is growing and growing. And the, God's word is spreading throughout the entire region area of, of Asia Minor. And so he, he stayed there and taught for two years uh, in the classroom of Tyrannus. Verse 11, God did extraordinary miracles through Paul so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to the sick and their illnesses were cured and the evil spirits, oh sorry, and cured the evil spirits and the evil spirits left them. Uh, verse 13, some Jews who went around driving out evil spirits tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those 
who are demon-possessed. They would say, In the name of Jesus, whom Paul preached, I command you to come out. Seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. One day, the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, Paul I know about, but who are you? And then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them, overpowered them. He gave them all such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. Listen, if you run out of a house naked and bleeding, something terrible has happened. Right? Like, so we, what we have here is a situation where Paul is doing this work of God, and he, God is, is giving him the power that goes along with this work. So he's basically giving validity to the words of Paul by bringing about these special miracles. The way that this, uh, this, the, the NIV translates it, um, it says that these miraculous, uh, let's see, extraordinary miracles is what it calls it here. But this word extraordinary actually kind of points to the idea that this was a rare type of miracle or a, uh, a miracle that we wouldn't expect necessarily to see everywhere all the time. So if you ever turn on the TV and someone says, hey, I will send you my sweat rag if you give us a, a donation to our ministry and then you, you know, you'll receive blessing, like that's not what's going on here. We don't take this and extrapolate this. This is describing something, not giving us uh, an idea that we can continue to use throughout history. Right? This is a special miracle going on with this work of, of God. Now, I want to be really clear. We believe that the Holy Spirit is active today and heals and does all kinds of miracles. But this specific miracle was kind of a one-off kind of situation. This was a miracle that was happening essentially because this work of God was happening and it was bringing validity to what Paul was teaching. This doesn't mean that we don't still pray for and receive healing from the Holy Spirit. We believe the Holy Spirit is active, that all the, the gifts are active, but also it doesn't mean that I take my sweat rag after a softball game and drop it in the mail to you and say, hey, good luck. Hope, hopefully this heals somebody. Right? That's not what we're talking about here. But there was a ton of power coming out of this work of God. People were being saved. The Word of God was being preached. And God was doing all kinds of things to bless what was happening here and to sort of prove it in the eyes of the Ephesians, right? So sort of give them something to see what God was doing. Um, and so what happens is these itinerant, the, essentially these, these Jewish, uh, the sons of this Jewish priest are going around and they're trying to work out demons in people. And they realize, hey, there's some sort of formula here that if we say the right words, like we can actually drive out demons in people's names. So they're like, hey, in the name of Jesus, the guy Paul's talking about, uh, we're going to try to drive this demon out. And the demons are not intimidated by people using God like he's a formula. God is not supposed to be a formula. Right? We often get this idea that we're supposed to put money in the vending machine and punch in the right thing and get the thing out that we want. And that's not how God operates. right? Columns that held up this huge building that was designed to worship Artemis, or also known as Diana, okay? You would come into the city, into the harbor, and you would see on a hill overlooking the city was this building gilded in gold that was so gigantic, people from all over the world came to see it. Okay, think like Hanging Gardens of Babylon. Think pyramids. Think you know, some of the Roman projects that come along at some point. Like, think about all of those things. It was kind of all wrapped up into it. It was the most famous piece of architecture that existed. Now, in this temple, there was a meteorite, black meteorite that was carved into, maybe carved into, or maybe came looking like, I'm, it's un, we're unsure 
exactly what the story was, but there was some sort of like relic that came from the sky that was worshipped inside of this temple that looked like a woman who was not wearing clothing, who had multiple ways to feed children, okay? Just, yeah. And this was the goddess, not only of fertility, but also of small animals, which I can't figure out how that goes together, and the hunt. I don't really know what's happening here. There's like, we're killing the animals, we're protecting the animals, I'm not really sure, we're giving fertility. Most people worshipped this goddess in the way of trying to uh, have her bless their fertility. Inside this temple were lewd acts that happened. I don't really want to get into it very specifically, but basically just about as, it was sort of like a temple and a brothel kind of mixed together in a weird way. And so people came from all over the world to see it. They came from all over the world to experience what was going on inside of this temple. They came to try to get fertility so people would travel to try to get for blessings on their fertility. And so this, you can't overestimate how big of a deal this building was and this goddess was to this place. Now Paul has not been preaching hey, don't be part of this cult. Like, hey, Artemis is this thing. Like, we, you know, we, have no, we have no text anywhere in here where he is preaching directly against this cult. Although, I think if you did ask him, hey, what's the story with Artemis? He would go, that's a cult. Don't do that. Don't go in there. Don't go near there. Stay away from that. But he's not out there preaching against what's going on. I want you to really think about this long and hard because this does influence how we influence our culture around us. Paul is so concerned with teaching God's word with creating the church, with seeing the church affect the community, that it is driving the temple of Artemis out of business. All the side trades, these guys who make these little silver, you know, uh, little trinkets that are, people take home with them after they visit, you know, they take home a silver Artemis. No one's buying those anymore. People aren't going there. No one's using the temple. There's actually other writing during this time of other Roman officials who start to blame the Christians for the idea that no one's using the temples, no one's sort of participating in temple worship because they've met Jesus and now they don't do that. Like you can't underestimate how big of a deal it is when a community of people see transformation in their lives and they start to unwind some of the bad habits that they have in their lives and they start to not participate in some of the things, and you start to see things, little cottage industries and communities dry up because the people, they're not out there preaching against something or trying to you know, burn something down or trying to find politicians who will shut something down or trying to pass legislation that will stop the usage of something. They're just living for Jesus and drawing other people in to live for Jesus, and it starts to change the culture because of the way that they live. I think too many of us are thinking, how do I get politicians to make this happen? How do I change the law? How do I get the right person voted in? How do I, you know, how do I, whatever, go online and be a social media warrior for something? You know, how do I start fights with individuals who I disagree with on certain issues? And in reality, what Paul is doing is just living for Jesus and calling other people to do that. And those things start to dry up. And the culture begins to change and shift. And they're seeing it's, there's a, uh, a, there is a fiscal change. There is an uh, industry change that happens in this city because these Christians are living 
for Jesus. Like how amazing if we lived for Jesus and drew other people in that we started to change the culture around us, not because we're out picketing something or boycotting something or you know, trying to get people voted into a certain thing or not passing legislation. And by the way, I'm not telling you you can't do that stuff, but that's not how you change culture. You change it from the inside out by living out the truth you want to see in that culture. Right? You're called to put your values on display. Right? You're called to live for Jesus in the midst of a culture that doesn't live for Jesus. And when we all do that, it can change an entire city or region's culture because there's enough people following Christ in that place. And that's what ha- is happening. This guy has basically making the case that Paul has ruined their business and ruined their reputation because now people look at them like, hey, you guys are cult worshipers and we're not going to buy stuff from you. And it is putting them out of business and making them look bad. And so this sort of situation gets kind of crazy. Uh, first, he makes the case that it's their civic duty to worship Artemis because that's you know, what's known here. And then he sort of changes his uh, idea. Verse 28. When they heard this, they were furious and began shouting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! Soon the whole city was in an uproar. The people seized Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia, and all of them rushed into the theater together. Paul wanted to appear before the crowd, but the disciples would not let him. Like, just put yourself... So this, this theater, you can go look at pictures of it. It's unbelievable. Like, thousands of people could fit in it. It would be gigantic. There would have been tons of people that could have fit into this place. It is not a safe place. And I love it. When Paul hears that there's some sort of riot going on because of the way Christians are acting, and that whoever gets in front of these people is going to be in a tough spot, he goes, cool, there's a gathering of people. Let me go share Jesus with them. Like his first thought is, just put me in there. I'll, I'll talk to them. I'll, I'll reason with them. It'll be great. I'll start talking about Jesus. I know they're mad about Jesus, but if you put me in front of them, Jesus will win. It'll be great. Like, he immediately goes to, let me go share the gospel in this place. Like, yes, sometimes sharing the gospel is not the safest thing in the world. Doesn't mean we should shy away from it. You know, and then they're yelling, great is uh, Artemis of the Ephesians. And you think that's kind of ridiculous. Like, who still worships Artemis? Do you know any Artemis followers? Has anyone come to you recently and said, hey, listen, I really want to talk to you about your relationship with Artemis. Right? Like, I got a letter in the mail from some cult that was like, hey, we want to talk to you about your relationship with our God that we serve, right? Like, there are people out there who are repping all kinds of weird stuff. You don't know anyone who worships Artemis. Artemis is gone. Nobody worships. If you go and look modern day, you show up in Ephesus and you go up to where the, the uh, temple was, there's one column in a field. We didn't even refine this temple, and people didn't think it existed exactly. They were like, "What? Where is this?" We didn't find this until like mid 1800s, and was it wasn't even excavated fully and able to be visited until like early 1900s, right? Like, Artemis is gone. People are worshiping Artemis. They're saying, "Great is Artemis of the Ephesians." They are in full worship mode, and they would, in their lifetime, right, probably not see this, but a few generations later, it would be gone. The temple would be gone. There would be no one left worshiping this God. We do this same thing culturally. There's something else to be worshipped. Just It feels like now just about every year. 
right? Like, I see people give their lives to things that are so stupid. They give their lives to social media. They give their lives to fantasy football. They give their lives to hunting. They give their lives to... I'm going to give you all the guy ones because they're my guy friends, right? They give, they give their lives to what people think of them. They give their lives to their 401k. They give their lives to the government or the political party they're associated with. They're like, just continue on. They give their lives to pornography. They give their lives to alcohol. There's a lot of things that are really dark as well that they give their lives to. And there are people running around in our culture yelling, great is this or that or this or that or whatever. And those things will die and they will not lead anyone to a relationship with God. They will not change your life at all. I think anyone who's gotten to the end of any of those things finds that they are meaningless. They are worthless. They will not serve you. And most people don't think they're running around saying, great is my fantasy football team. Great is, you know, whatever. I don't, great is my political party, right? They're, but they are. That's what they're doing. They're giving their life to something that was never meant for you to base your life on. Your life was meant to be based on your relationship with God. It's not that those, some of those things, not all of them, obviously, some of those things can't be part of a, of a balanced life of, of a Jesus follower. But man, is Jesus top of your list or isn't he? Sit down and do some work on it. Where does your money go? Where does your time go? Where are your relationships built? Like, I think a lot of people, when they sat down and looked at it, they'd be like, nope, I'm spending way more time, way more money, way more of my resources. I talk about this all the time. I talk about that all the time. These are all my relationships. And they're all in something other than Jesus. That's idolatry. That's what we're talking about. These idolaters were making little idols right, for this temple. And Paul is saying, no, Jesus is what we're meant to put our, our identity in. It's what we're meant to give our lives to. It's what we're meant to be followers of the way, to actually be living out the way of Jesus. It's not that those things can't be part of our lives, but we cannot base our lives on them. And whatever the cultural fad is, it will be gone. Right? There are things, I was just having this conversation, like I was one of the last people playing Pogs, I'm going to be honest with you. Like, There's all kinds of, uh, only 90s babies know what that even is. Uh, there's all kinds of dumb things that we found ourselves doing that, it, they're gone. They're gone. Your life can't be based on it. It leads you nowhere. And I would ask the question, are you worshipping some sort of idol or are you worshipping Jesus. All right, it's a sprint to the end here. Paul wanted to appear before the crowd, but the disciples would not let him because they're smart and they wouldn't let him, even though I'm sure if he was a handful saying, hey, just get me in front of him. But he, he's like, I've been stoned before. I've been thrown out of cities. Like, this is fine. Just put me in front of him. I was planning on leaving anyways. If they throw me out, it's okay. The assembly was in confusion. Some were shouting one thing, some another. Most of the people did not even know why they were there. The Jews in the crowd pushed Alexander to the front and they shouted instructions to him. He motioned for silence in order to make a defense before the people, right? But he's no Paul. It says, but then they realized he was a Jew and they all shouted in unison for about two hours, great as Artemis of the Ephesians. Listen, whatever the culture, by the way, is pushing, they shout for a short time and then it moves on to something else. And most people don't even know what they're shouting about and there's a lot of confusion in it and it doesn't even add up. That's really what's going on here. The city's clerk quieted the crowd and said, Fellow Ephesians, don't, uh, doesn't all the world know the city of Ephesus is the guardian of the temple of the great Artemis and her image, which fell from heaven? 
Therefore, since the facts are undeniable, you ought to calm down and not do anything rash. You have brought these men here, though they have neither robbed temples nor blasphemed our goddess. Right? They're not preaching against Artemis. They're preaching about Jesus. If then Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have a grievance against anybody, the courts are open and there are pro-councils. They can press charges. If there is anything further you want to bring up, it must be settled in a legal assembly. As it is, we are in danger of being charged with rioting because of what happened. And in this case, we would not be able to account for this commotion since there is no reason for it at all. After this, he had said this, they dismissed the assembly. Paul's words, his teaching, end in a riot in Ephesus. I think we miss sometimes the idea that if we are faithful and God does move in power, we should expect opposition. In fact, I think too many people see the smoothness of something working correctly and having fruit all the time as being the only way that they understand success and think God is in something. When in reality, when God calls us to do hard things, we will most likely see opposition. And when it gets more difficult, that is actually how we know we're doing what God has called us to do. Like so many of us say, hey, I'm going to follow Jesus, but then it gets hard. Something happens where you have to stand up and you actually have to live out your value in front of other people. And it gets difficult and you find yourself in tension and you're not sure how to figure it out. And you think, you know, God must not be in this. He must not be in this because, look, I'm already struggling or I'm already having trouble with this or I'm already... Not sure. And what you should understand is that when you experience opposition, that might actually be a better sign of God's involvement in what is going on. That when He starts to move in power, and when His Word starts to change, transform you to the place where you're burning old stuff and walking away from difficult things and changing the culture around you, when those things start to happen, guess what happens? There is a real enemy and opposition comes. In fact, if Jesus is clear about one thing that he absolutely promises us. I should, I should say two things. He promises us his presence. Okay. Also, he promises us hardship. Too many of us are like, oh, things are getting hard. God must not be in this. No, things are getting hard. God has you exactly where he wants you. I'm not saying every single time, for sure. Lean on the community you have. Seek his face. Pray about it. Ask for him to show you. Ask for him to speak to you. Ask for clarity when you're making decisions and doing hard things. But when you experience opposition, it doesn't mean he's not in it. It could mean he's like fully in it. And now you're experiencing opposition because the enemy is coming against you in that thing. Any new thing that you start in your life that's going to draw you closer to God's word and to God's presence and to the Holy Spirit is going to be fought and opposed by an enemy who wants to see you fail. Right? We see at the beginning of Corinth, Paul goes into Corinth and he is afraid because he's been thrown out of every city and he's been beaten to death and he's been stoned. At one point, he, we're not even sure exactly how it's written, but it looks like he kind of almost dies and is brought back to life after his stoning. Like That's how intense the opposition that Paul has went through, and he's afraid in Corinth. It says he comes in fear and trembling to share God's word because he knows he's going to get tossed out of town as soon as he gets going. And by the time you get to Ephesus, right? A couple years, year and a half in Corinth, two and a half years in Ephesus, it's about four or five years later, Paul is saying, put me in front of the crowd that might kill me. 
I'm good. I'm ready. Let's go. If anything, I know God's working right there. He's in this. Put me in front of it. I'm not, I don't have fear at all in this place. I'm going to stand up for the gospel in this moment right here. And I think like as we process what our next year and a half, two years is going to look like, we have the temptation to go all in on the politics, man. To fight with one another, to see all kinds of disunity in the church, to get so far into our political like sides that we miss the idea that God still wants to use us to see the gospel move forward. I'm not saying that we disconnect and don't do anything, but I'm saying when Jesus was presented with the idea of like, should we be political or not, he said, hey, let the politics stay in the realm of the politics and focus on the gospel. Like That's what we have coming. It's going to get crazy. It's going to create all kinds of anxiety in people. It's got all kinds of tension in people. Like We've been through this just a couple years ago and a couple years before that. We should know this is coming and know that our goal during this time frame, when we see everything getting more tense and more difficult and more you know, ununified in the church, is to move forward for the gospel in the midst of that. Like We should change the culture based on the way that we live. To not engage, to not fight with people, to not put something above the gospel that ruins our relationship with other people. To keep God's word and his gospel as the most important primary thing. I know it's hard. I'm not saying I do it perfectly either. Okay? I pretty much had to disconnect from almost all social media. For any of you who've like sent me a message like on social media at any point, like I have a couple people that still forward me stuff on like Instagram. I check it like every like three weeks. I'm sorry. Like I don't even want to be on there. Because I know I want to fight with people. So I had to step out. I'm ready to step out for the next year. Maybe once we get another president in place, maybe I'll go on there and share some pictures of whatever food I'm eating, okay? <laughs> but that's what it looks like for me. I'm not telling you you have to do that. But I'm telling you that if you can't keep the gospel as your primary thing, like you're missing it. That's what's coming. Prepare yourself for it. When somebody wants to fight with you about politics or whatever, like just come back with the gospel. Just share Jesus with them. They will leave you alone. <laughs> All right. Let me pray. God, I pray for our culture. All the messed up pieces of our culture. All the things that we want to just war against. All the places that we feel like things are not just, they're not fair, where we see major problems. God, would you just help us to stay focused on your gospel? That, that the way we change this culture is to love the way that you called us to love, to be agents for the gospel, to be living out a lifestyle that looks different than the culture around us. Would you show us what that looks like? Would you give us boldness in places where we should be sharing our faith and are afraid to? God, would you just continue to give us the strength to stand up to you know, uh, the culture around us in a way that honors and loves people. And Jesus, would you move in power? Would your word be something that grounds us? And would your power come alongside of what we're doing here as a church? Would you grow this church in the midst of this next season that we find ourselves in? Would you bring people in here who need to find the safety of a community that's here to love and disciple and share your word with them? And would you use us in that? Help us to get rid of our idols, to be honest about what they are, 
And God, help us to move forward listening to and taking cues from your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you guys stand up? I just want to send you with a blessing today. God, please use these people to expound and expand your gospel, that they would be people who show your image to the world around them. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Love you guys. We'll see you next week.